Welcome to Nothing Ventured, a podcast exploring the stories that make the incredible world of tech and venture tick. Join me, Arish Shah, as I speak to the founders, investors, and ecosystem operators trying to make a dent in the future. Hello and welcome to Nothing Ventured with me, Arish Shah. Today, I am really excited to have with me Marvin Harrison. Marvin is founder and CEO of Dope Black, a community interest company established to provide a community of digital and physical safe spaces for and to improve the outcomes of black people. With over 250,000 members across the UK, US and South Africa, what started as a WhatsApp group between 23 fathers now encompasses Dope Black dads, mums, women, men and queers. Prior to founding Dope Black and beloved agency, a sister consultancy focused on diversity, equity and inclusion, Marvin has worked across marketing at companies such as News Corp, Blipper, Manchester United Football Club, Samsung, and Hogarth. Marvin, thank you for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year also. It's an important thing to still be saying. <laughs> Absolutely. Happy New Year. We are recording this mid-Jan. It feels like 2021 is a bit of a dream. Kicking straight off, I, I, I'd really love to understand why Dope Black is necessary and what are the outcomes you're really driving to achieve? So it's necessary because I think one of the key things that I wanted to create was a legacy as a Black-centered organization that was trying to improve the outcomes of Black people, but one that had legacy and an infrastructure had a way of supporting people long term. And I think there's been lots of movements that have been created and they've been created for very specific reasons at specific times over the last 60, 70 years. And I think when I think about if I could identify and name a black organization that I can go to for help, support, for insight, for what I call access to the code of life, then I, I couldn't necessarily name one that I would reach out to. So I really wanted to create one that had legacy that could be used generationally. I think that's super interesting. I mean, one of the things that I think you and I have talked about is that, you know, these community spaces are, are massively important, but they're equally, they've been equally very difficult to achieve without the prevalence of the tech platforms and so on, right? And and it strikes me that Dope Black couldn't exist without those incumbent tech platforms, but they themselves don't have the most pristine of histories, right? Regarding race, whether that's diversity of tech, talent or more insidious issues, right? Such as algorithmic bias. I mean, what do you think about that dichotomy? Like, how do you reconcile the need to use these platforms with some of the issues that these platforms in, in themselves kind of raise? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And so there's been plenty of people who have critiqued Facebook, for example, which is the group that ultimately started us. I started with other word that we did. And so you think about something like Facebook groups or Facebook pages, you know, there's always been this question about what has Facebook done to change the landscape of the world? How have they managed access to data? How have they managed safeguarding, anti-racism, those types of things? But it's, it's interesting that when you do start to actually speak to them about what their challenges are, uh, all the questions I pose to them, there's another side to the conversation that I never really considered. So things like, for example, Twitter, we use Twitter quite a lot. We got huge growth on Twitter in 12 months and I sat down with them and I was like, you know, there's a lot of anti-black sentiment on your platforms. What could you do about it? And they said, we want to encourage conversation and dialogue. We do need to be a bit more aggressive in terms of shutting down some of these pages or some of the people that we know who are high profile, misinforming and, you know, propagating for our, our, our sake, anti-black sentiment. But at the same time, if we start policing something like the N-word, for example, use that as a barometer. What happens if someone Black is doing it. What happens if it's being done in the context of music, musical music? And where do we go? How far upstream do we go? How far downstream do we go? And the fact is, is that it's not that there necessarily isn't a firm answer at the time. And this was like two years ago, we had this conversation. It's the fact that it does require a nuance and a, 
and dialogue. So if I think about someone like Twitter, do I necessarily feel safe on there? No, not really. And a lot of the times when you're on there speaking, you can find yourself, you know, in the middle of a storm because of how the platform is, the lack of editing that's allowed to be done. Those things make it, you know, quite a volatile platform at times. I look at something like Facebook and you cannot directly target black people. So I can't say I have a black father group on Facebook. I would like to speak to black parents and then put, you know, 20 quid behind it. But if I had a cycling platform, I could type a cycling platform. And if I type it in the UK, in the US, I can by proxy target people from a particular race just by sheer volume. And so if I want to speak to white people about something, it's actually a lot easier than it is if I want to speak to specifically black people about something. And so it does have a limitation and it makes it a lot difficult for us to grow and speak to the people who would actually benefit from this platform. But over the last two years in working with Facebook, it's been quite clear that there are other ways around it, but it's not as direct and it and, and it is a limitation. And it makes it in a, way, a weird way, when I challenged them about that on Facebook, they were clear that if we are allowed to target Target black people, for example, black parents for good, like don't black dads, we could also target them for misinformation and that creates more problems as well. There are two really interesting points that I think come out of that. And you mentioned editing, right? So the problem that the tech platforms have is editing requires human input. Human input is less scalable. They rely on algorithms. Algorithms rather are not nuanced or are can be relatively blunt instruments. And to your point, like how do you, you know, how, how do you edit out the N-word when it's being used as as a symbol of power, maybe, or as a reflection of, you know, what's actually happening in someone's life at the time, right? Like you don't want those stories to be subverted or, or suppressed. You need to allow them to shine. So it strikes me that we're going to have this debate constantly until there is some sort of artificial intelligence or general artificial, sorry, artificial general intelligence that that can see nuance, right? Which I, which I think I'm a, we're a fair, fair way away from. And, and then the question that arose in my mind when you were talking was I appreciate the fact that you can't target uh, racially on the platforms and I think to your point that has both pros and cons and I think there are uh, definitely unintended consequences by not having the ability to do that but it'd be great I mean like from your perspective are there a lot of and this is going to sound like a really naive question are there a lot of black people on these platforms as compared to kind of the white populace and when we talk about black people we're talking about black people from let's say the west or we're talking about you know from Africa or from from other regions well i mean how do you even think about it because i mean for me the term black automatically leads me to think of black africa i was born in kenya and you and i had this conversation does that make me african even though i'm i'm of you know uh, indian or origin and descent so so i guess there's two questions there so how, do, how does one even think about black as a term of reference and then secondly are black people on these platforms in the same way and to the same same extent and with the same motivations maybe as as other users. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I found quite early on is the definition of black has always been considered black plus. And what I mean by that is the most inclusive version of blackness that we can find. And so for our Australia group, Aboriginal people, Polynesian people are considered inclusive in that in the concept of blackness. And it can differ in different nations. And I think we always try to play it by and almost like a localized approach to how we consider it. I think when we consider we can't conflate nationality, race, and ethnicity, and we know that race is largely unworkable anyway, but it's a one way of identifying a lived experience. And so it's almost like identify what doesn't work collectivize people under that banner with the view of destroying that idea after all. And I think for me, being of the diaspora, being a child of Africa is still an inconsistent term. As you mentioned, your family are from Kenya. And I think in terms of nationalism, you know, for me, it's unworkable also. I think borders are 
razor thin. So if you're from Pakistan or India, depending on what century you were considered to be born there, you could be considered somewhere else. It just becomes really unworkable. And the lines of new countries, countries that have evolved, whether you're from Palestine versus Israel, you know, depending on your political leanings and understandings, you know, all of those things then become nuances that need to be considered. When I think we're talking about black, we're talking about melanated people. And I think when we're talking about that, they usually, in terms of ethnically anyway, are children of Africa. And when we talk about them being African, being born there, it's a completely different set of rules. And I think what we're trying to do is say that our experience as as black people is unique. And in there, there are some nuances. And let's just say the male parenting experience is universal for everybody. And then there's probably about a 20% difference that is unique, specifically based on racial identity. And the legacy of those challenges in terms of global economics, social, political understanding and connectivity. And a very small difference is like, you know, as a black person in the UK, generationally from Jamaica, the difference between my experience than someone who could be from East Asia, let's say China, for example, is that politically you are supported by your nation at the table whenever you are represented in the UK, for example. So if something happens and let's say COVID, for example, when people are now having anti-Asian sentiment and they're saying East Asians are cold or COVID or whatever, and they start being you know racist towards East Asians and attacking them in the street, there is a nation that supports the base of your ethnicity, that can come to your aid, that can support you. There is a language that you are able to collectivize in. And a large part of blackness has been colonized, has been removed of its language, has been removed of its religion. We are almost like floating within Western society aimlessly. And the impact of that plus things like imperialism means that how much of our actual value representation is at the table on a global scale and who honors us compared to someone who's from the Middle East versus, you know, the Indian prime minister will come to sit down with Boris Johnson and talk about what the nation and the community is doing, what it needs, what the challenges are. And so we're even, even things like when COVID was happening and they were trying to lock down routes from India to the UK because this is the new variant is coming from India. There was a prime minister to call who could represent a large proportion of people and have a negotiation on what that actually meant for investment, for trade. And then they start to see conditions specifically cater towards an ethnicity, a race and a nationality and the religion also. And so I think those things become really, really important on a global scale. And you think about the resources of Africa and you look at its representation on the global scale. We don't have the representation that matches our resources and we don't have a representation that matches our racial experience. And so it creates lots of problems and many microaggressions and challenges that aren't necessarily universally understood. Not only that, but I guess it harks back to your point around belonging, right? Because it's fragmented by its very nature. And even if I think about various regions in in Africa, there is turmoil within those regions, between ethnic groups within the regions. And to your point, like uh, how how people identify changes again and again and again. But to to actually start somewhere, I guess you need to you need to 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 put a to put a line in the sand. In fact, I was really I, I wasn't aware that you were active in Australia. And, and Polynesia and I've, I've spent you know 10 years out in Papua New Guinea and, and between Papua New Guinea and Australia and absolutely I, I think the same issues are, are, are hugely prevalent over there in fact if, if anything you know they're almost more in their infancy maybe than than some of the issues that that have been you know around in in, in, in colonized Africa and then post post-colonial Africa because to an extent they're still they're still very young very new new nations right so we're really focused on what it means to take chances here at nothing venture 
it. It's it's why I launched this podcast as well as adventures that I've launched. But it strikes me that the ability to take risks is in reality limited to those that can afford to take them, right? And I, I was wondering for the Black diaspora, right, for, for, for Black people, what does taking a risk actually look like? You know, what is the approach to entrepreneurship as a result of that? I, I think for us inherently, because many things aren't designed with us in mind, it becomes natural to be entrepreneurial. And then in that you do have to take risks. I think it's almost a part of our DNA socially when we're in these places is that we don't have the things that we need. Like if, for instance, if you go to a Tesco, for example, our foods aren't present. And if you want to get food delivery, often it's quite difficult to get your food delivered. So then you'll find somebody who will create a platform that will allow you to order food from a particular diaspora from, you know, if I want to order plantain, for example, where would I get that as from an app? And so you start to get these really clever people who start looking at these problems and try to find answers. I think the challenge is, is that then is it scalable? So, you, you know, and then I think the significant lack of investment in these audiences and these areas, which means that rather than looking at it being like, you know, there's four and a half black and black mixed people in the UK, we could create a really good audience out of any startup idea that we have and it could be scalable. Whereas if you're talking about South Asia and you're probably looking at, I think it's 12 million, I believe the, the community is. And, and then you start looking at actually scalable ideas and then you start looking at actually the whole population as a whole, 68 million, but then like kind of go global. And I think a lot of funding is ring fence to things that can be scalable. I think more people are interested in honoring or representing ideas that can go to Facebook scale, Amazon scale, than they are to consider the idea that actually a strong niche is a great place to invest in. And I think the people that start to understand how to invest in these audiences will will reap long-term rewards. And it also is always scalable. So things like Plantain always enter into the mainstream. The other day I saw Oxtail which is a very well-known West African and Caribbean meat type. I saw it in Sainsbury's in a pre-packaged form with a fixed price attached. Now, you know, as long as I've been around, I've not seen that. But you'd have to buy that from a particular butcher in a particular area of town. And now Sainsbury's have adopted it. And I think this is where we start to realize where globalization means that the perspective of marginalized voices, I won't call them oppressed at this point, but marginalized voices can be in the center and are scalable and are worth investing in. So for us, I'm, you know, I'm not really seeing in a weird way, we probably are a business. I don't treat it like so. And I think when we talk about how do we create lasting change, there needs to be a sustainable element to it. But I think where success comes is how do you create a consistent life partner for people? And in that, it may not always look like something that is productized, you may have to move in a slightly different way. And so after like a very loud and directional first three years, I really took some time in the fourth year to consider what does it look like to do this for life? What does it look like to do this so that my children could be handed it? And actually it was very much centered in the platforms that we use, how we scale them, how we evolve to first party data, but then also how can we help and serve our community authentically? And then once you start doing that, the answers kind of come and if you listen to the community groups that you're honoring, they tell you what they need and the kind of solutions that they're looking for. And our job is to work to those answers with the existing platforms, but also people who are interested in serving those communities. I mean, that's the customer-centric approach, right? That that goes with, with all entrepreneurship or certainly all kind of startup wisdom. It's interesting. There was a tweet by from Henry, uh, from Henri Pierre Jacques, who's, uh, who's a partner at Harlem Capital. And he quoted, you know, I, the irony is a lot of African founders getting funded still aren't black. And sorry, 
I just I, I, just as you were talking there about entrepreneurship and, and and earlier about kind of that identity, that issue of identity versus political identity versus ethnic identity, etc. It just struck me that 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 was quite poignant. And the other the other kind of point that that you raised there that for me is again something that is very reminiscent of you know growing up traveling to Kenya every year is that that level of entrepreneurial drive where you see on every street corner you know guys that are repairing tires or repairing furniture or you know selling corn on the cob that's been grilled or whatever there's this very intense entrepreneurial you know because you have to you you have no other choice right if you if you want to bring food home to 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 the family that's what you've got to do but you also see this massive kind of innovative drive as a result of it right like and one of the things that I, I think over the last decade or so so that has really taken off in in, in again in, in East Africa and Kenya as an example is they call them the border borders which are basically it's a bicycle taxi because not everyone can afford an, uh, you know a, a motor vehicle but people still need to get from A to B you have guys you know you have people on on, on bicycles taking you know taking other people as as, uh, as passengers and I think to your point that directionality knowing understanding what is needed and then building ecosystems around what is needed will lead to I think those niches becoming better understood because they're not niches ultimately I you know I, I struggle to think of what you described as being a niche yes buying plantain may be slightly niche but when you think about the wealth and breadth of you know foodstuffs that come from various regions whether that's Caribbean whether that's from West Africa East Africa South Africa wherever each and every one of those right has has quite strong strong value and 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 ability to scale especially if you then kind of start bringing them together 2020 and 2021 have seen a lot of issues around race come right to the surface right especially in the US but it does feel like the UK still has some way to go. In 2021, last year, the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities released a report that noted that while racism and racial injustice do still exist, geography, family influence, socioeconomic background, culture and religion all have a greater impact on life chances. I don't buy into that particularly. I think there is systemic bias in, in a lot of places and certainly in the UK. I mean, what needs to change and, and, and how can people, more importantly, how can people affect that change? What needs to be done? Yeah. I think the question around racism is is one of those that you have to come to peace with, which is really sad. Whereas if you think about most social change, if you're talking about gender-based violence or domestic or whatever whatever the other thing is, any issue that's urgent on a global scale, cancer, for example, there is a consensus and a group of people who come together, put their minds together, who can generate money, focus the best minds on the challenge and come up with solutions. And I think with race, there is clearly something that is preventing organizations, institutions, and governments from creating a harder line about this. And having watched it and fought for it for a significant period of time directly myself, also experienced it for over 35 years, it's really clear to me that there is a bigger reason, mainly because the, the challenge is actually quite simple in the sense that no, no one's born racist. You don't, as a child, you are not inherently born racist. It's about programming and conditioning, usually centered in your parents' attitudes and beliefs, and then amplified socially, then amplified institutionally when those social ideas and beliefs are then put into policy, procedures, law. And I think what, what has happened is there's been a direct ask to evolve some of these ideas around difference based on race and what we do when it happens and the lack of action. I could take the Premier League has a very simple understanding where we can see how many people play, how many footballers play professional football at the highest level, how many of them go into coaching and management, how many of them go into the administration ownership side, how many of them go into punditry. And 
where the accessibility is on a racial difference, but also when an incident occurs, whether it be a random fan uh, at a game or something clearly where Jurgen Klopp is diminishing the value of African Cup of Nations and saying it's a low-grade tournament, uh, but yet two of his top players perform in that tournament. These types of things that are said and just allowed to be said. And it takes someone like Ian Wright to reference this and to be the the voice of reason. And there's no one on the institutional level who holds Klopp to account for diminishing the value of a tournament, an international tournament of one of the largest continents on the planet. And I think there's these little things that happen and people don't even bother to correct them to hold people to account people don't retract their statements if I also remember correctly Klopp referred to Mane when he considered buying him for Borussia Dortmund said he didn't buy him because he looked like a rapper these are the types of things that said and happened and this is the manager of the second biggest team in the country and nobody seems to make that a massive deal and so I think it's profitable to be ignorant to race and so as long as it's profitable there'll be always someone slightly defending it gaslighting it confusing it conflating it and I think fighting for it is an incredibly exhausting experience and psychological warfare it's like if you know something is happening and they're trying to convince you it's not and you're a sound mind and body after a while it takes its toll and I think a lot of people who fight for change have a medium to short shelf life in doing so and then you also just want to be a human being people feel like it's a, a endearing to want to fight for your life constantly all the time in sort of survival mode they never considered the idea that you would value focusing on the things that move you in a positive way rather than you know defending your lived experience so for me race is completely unworkable as a concept anyway and racism is a byproduct of the unworkableness of it and i think it will continue as long as it provides some sort of commercial capitalist gain and I think what we're asking for in terms of change is on the ground day to day person to person we change our attitudes towards the people around us it takes reflection and empathy to really understand that there is no inherent difference between myself and yourself the differences need to be invited you you can invite me into what your differences are based on your lived experience your passions the things that move you your lived experience the challenges you face the opportunities that you've taken advantage of you can tell me those things but i can't inherently decode whether that is happening for you just because of what you look like i would have no idea and what if i then erase the fact that you were kenyan what if i erase the fact that you had a connection to africa just assumed you were from south asia assumed what your religion was assumed as a result of that your parents owned this and they gave you that and that's why you're here today I have no idea and then I lose the possibility and the passion and the joy of discovering that thing with you you're a real person sitting in front of me I want to discover what your actual story is rather than what I have assumed based on stereotypes and lazy presentations of your lived experience oh my god that's hu- hugely powerful and I think anyone who comes from any diverse background has probably had exactly what you described happened to them i think i had it happen to me fairly recently <laughs> i think i had it happen to me in in a joking way by by my by by my in-laws who are who are italian because well there's two things i think people find it easier to cope with mental models that are easy and that are to your point lazy because that's that's just that's just, it's just simpler than putting in the work and then the second thing that i think comes out of what you described there is it, it it's that age old follow the money right if there is money to be made then uh, if it benefits someone it's easier to just keep it hidden or or, or or hide it or sweep it under the carpet and that kind of leads me to to one of my final kind of questions you know ultimately this podcast has traditionally been about tech and venture certainly certainly all of our guests to date have have mainly come from kind of that sort of background one of the reasons i really 
really wanted to have you join us as a guest was because I think there is just such a need for voices to be heard and you know, I'm of the opinion, whatever little I can do to to promote voices that I think need to be heard, you know, that's something that I should do. But when I talk about tech and venture, between 2009 and 2019, less than a quarter of a percent, so 0.24% of all venture capital available to UK startups went to 38 black founders over a decade. Uh, and that's according to research by Extend Ventures. I mean, you talked about a, a little bit, but I mean, how can we improve these numbers and let's face it, like the bar is ridiculously low. Yeah, for me, I think it's about identifying the areas in which are being invested and what the strategies are and who are at the forefront of those things. I saw a report about Chinese investment. It's very much heavily in biology and robotics and AI, for example. That was a large part of the investment strategy. And in that, we then want to make sure that the things that are going to be needed in the future, we have people from all walks of life having their perspective on those things. That like We're very aware of what happened with AI when it was made by white men only. Most of it didn't serve or represent anyone else other than them. But specifically, black people were raised from, you know, a lot of the AI biases. So then in that, we need to make sure that we're in our room. We understand that there are systemic challenges that prevent us from just walking into those industries, those spaces. And at times we may not even have the insight to know that those are the places that we need to be. And so we are ultimately then missing. So first and foremost is to be, be aware of what the future looks like and where we can play a role. I think the next thing is, is that we then need to actually invite the idea that we have a direct view and a value in being in those spaces. So it's like our work turning up to those places and demanding that we are seen, heard, and we have a seat at the table. And then it's like, how do, what kind of, I think our perspective, and I think usually marginalized voices perspective on solving problems usually sees the whole world in it, which is why when women run companies or countries, there is a slightly more inclusive approach to it. And we want to make sure that those things are added in. And I think ultimately the rest of it then comes down to some of the, the biases and the tropes that are perpetuated against marginalized voices in terms of what they can and can't do. And I think how Africa is seen, like I'm in South Africa right now, and I'm very present to how people look at the continent as a whole. And it's almost as if this is it's kind of like unruly, unadministered space a group of people and they don't honor the fact that there are cultural customs that are driving a lot of behavior and what those values of those cultures can create for organizations, for products, for investment. And I think it's just, in my view, there is a very much a, a, a strong future for Africa and I think people will start to look in it properly. But we got to be mindful, and you alluded to this earlier, that it doesn't just fall into the hands of non-Black or non-African people and it becomes a white person's view or a Chinese person's view or what black people need and should be doing. Like, do we need an Uber in Africa? We probably don't. And we look at in South Asia and how they transport. Do you want to erase that type of transport so that we can have more Toyotas on the street or more Nissans on the street? I, I don't know. I quite like the authenticity of what it is and how you in Mumbai may be traveling around. We don't want to erase that. And I think there is a bit of... It's a white supremacy approach. It's a white extremist approach to how business should be done, where it's like, oh, there's an American one, so we just make one for everywhere. And you've seen the rejection of that has been that many countries have, you know, set fire to Uber drivers and, you know, had gone to war with them with local taxi routes or because you're erasing culture and history from a country. And it may not necessarily serve the people that are there. Also, can it, is it affordable? You know, does it work? Is it safe? One of the big questions about Uber, and I'm using Uber as a battering stick at this point, but one of the big questions around Uber, even in South Africa, is how have they made it safeguarded, safe for women? 
say for young people, say for older people. Everybody complains about safety in these taxi companies, including Bolt. And so they've never considered those things in their product testing because they immediately assume every climate is the same as New York. And it's not. And this is where these companies don't work. And this is where someone local will create an answer. The sad part is it's likely that that person will be underfunded. Sad part is that Uber will probably aggressively go after them and make a zero sum profit against them for five years and then wipe them out and then probably try and acquire their customer base for a fraction of the price. This is the type of aggressive tactics that we're going up against. So the answer isn't simple, but I think the main thing is to identify where the future is. The second part is about us as people of a community looking at how we should be playing a role and turning up and knocking the door down and showing that we're in those rooms. Then it takes an, an attitudinal shift from the people who are investing and how they see us in those markets and actually listening to what it is that we need rather than just perpetuating Western ideas in different markets and enforcing that on the people. There are several things <laughs> that you said there that that again resonate. Interestingly, we've recently had on the podcast an investor who was head of Uber's China operations and you know, one of the things that she said is you have to be local, right? You can't assume that you could turn up in China and run it in the same way as you would in San Francisco, as an example. And I think 100% agree with that. The, the second thing that you said about serving the people and, and, and honoring kind of what is already there, I think, again, like how do you, and, and in fact, you know, the, the, the border border that I talked about, there is a company in Uganda that, that was set up that basically turned that into a, a more sustainable model, but using motorcycles as opposed to bikes, right? So again, kind of developing on rather than replacing and the third one is you know you've got to identify where the future is, is is something you just said and to me the thing that i get really excited about when i think about innovation within within africa as a continent as a whole is that there are so many huge niche problems right that are highly personal let's say to, to people within within you know a variety of different contexts within within africa and the one that i always sort of give as an example and it may not be the best example but it's the one that i think most people are aware of is that whilst we in the West were sort of struggling with trying to get better interfaces on our mo on our banking, M-Pesa was developed and, and you suddenly had inclusion across multiple countries and nations, you know, uh, uh, financial inc uh, inclusion across multiple countries and nations where, where previously people didn't have it. So I think there is a huge amount of opportunity. And it's again, as you say, it's about making sure that people are just aware that those opportunities exist and, and really maybe having to try that much harder to, to present them. Marvin, it's been absolutely amazing having you here with me today thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate you having given up your time for our listeners where can they find you are you online presumably you are is the best place linkedin twitter elsewhere i think linkedin is probably my preferred platform but if you type in marvin harrison m-a-r-v-y-n harrison uh, on any platform you can find me um, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, probably the most common places to find. And if they want to get involved with the communities within Dope Black, where's the best place for them to look out for those? I would advise them to type in Dope Black into any social media platform and then a whole list of different Dope Black pages will turn up and just follow the ones that move you. Everyone that runs those communities is amazing, full of integrity, love and light, and you'd be very much welcomed. And make sure you actually contribute. Don't be a silent sleeper. Like stand up, raise your hand and try to help in some way. Amazing. Thank you so much, Marvin. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you. Thanks for listening to Nothing Ventured, an Emerge One production. Follow us on social and at nothingventured.tech to make sure you never miss another episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can support us by giving us five stars on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We'd love to hear from our listeners to understand the topics and guests that they'd like to hear about and from most. Drop us a message via the links in the show notes. And thanks again for your support.